recording until we get to that slide, so I have to wait. So, welcome to episode 23 of The Plan. Uh, we are almost done with the Old Testament. We've been telling the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end. We started with Genesis in September, and this will be my last sermon in the Old Testament. Pastor Jack is going to be taking us through Esther next week. He's been pre- teaching a class on it, and so it makes sense to have him teach us how the story of Esther fits into the story of the Bible. But what we've been doing is we've been looking to tell the entire story of the Bible as one story, and this is the plot that we've been following. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. In every part of the Bible, this is what's going on. That uh, God made the world, and he gave people the job of ruling over it on his behalf, and he wanted to live here with us, and we messed it up, and we kept messing it up. And so the Bible is the story of God putting that right. And he decided to work through one particular group of people, the Israelites, and accomplish the plan through them so that people could look at Israel and see who God is and what he wants for his people and be brought to God. But what we found over the last 20 or so weeks is that the Israelites weren't any better at that than anybody else. And so they kept messing up and kept messing up. And finally, last week, we covered the point in the story where God says, enough, Um, this has gone too far. I cannot continue to support you without giving people the wrong impression about who I am. The, the rebellion has gone on so long that at this point I need to show people that I, um, that I do not endorse what you're doing. And so he invoked the curses of the covenant. Basically, he invoked the, the breach of contract clause in the agreement that he and Israel had signed, and that meant that they were sent into exile. The Babylonian Empire came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took them away into exile. Today, we're picking up the story about 70 years later, and the one big thing that's changed in world history between is that the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians, so now uh, the Persian emperor is in charge. His name is Cyrus, and he's going to make an announcement as part of declaring himself the new king uh, that will move us into the next part of the story. But as we read our opening section, remember how we keep our our bearings in the story of the Bible. We watch for uh, who is the story about, where is their home, how can they meet with God, and what did God tell them to do. And as we read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is actually one book that our Bible split into two, as you read it with this approach, you find a very interesting message coming out of this book. So let's let's start at the beginning. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All right, so who is this story about? Well, at this point, we're going to start to use a new term that generally is used to refer to the people of Israel as they go into exile. Now we're going to call them the Jews. You wonder where that term comes from? It comes from Judahite, because those that survive, have survived this long, the remnant of Israel is just the nation of Judah. 
And so as they go into exile around the known world, they're called the Jews. And at this point, they don't really have a central leader. There's no king on the throne. And we're going to see actually a group of people who will lead the Jews during this time. So it's not really one person leading them since the, the throne is empty. Where is their home? We've been calling it the, pro, the, the kingdom of Judah, but at this point, it's a province of the Persian Empire. Now, keep in mind, at this point, and even by the end of the story, the majority of Jews will not live in the province of Judah, but that is their homeland. That is, that, it may not be where they're living, but it is their home. It is the land that God had promised them. Now, how can they meet with God? Well, the temple has been destroyed, and that means that at this point, they can't. Now, that doesn't mean God can't meet with them. But when we're talking about uh, the presence of God, we're saying, is there a place where they can go and count on God being there? Like, is there a place where God keeps office hours? And at this point, there is not. So God may meet with them, but they can't meet with God anywhere because the temple is destroyed. So, what is their purpose? What is their job? They've got two jobs. One that came out of this story, what were they told to do? Rebuild the temple. Okay? So, job number one, or the, 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 the immediate job, is to rebuild the temple. But they also have a task from the covenant. Now, we talked last week about the fact that the covenant, uh, they had broken the covenant, and God counted the contract as broken. But the book of Deuteronomy actually talks about what happens after the covenant is broken. And here's what it says. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So God says in Deuteronomy, all the way back in Moses, that when the covenant is broken and you receive all these punishments, I will end your punishment when you return to me and obey me. So their big job, their most important job, is to return to God and obey him. So the immediate task is rebuild the temple, but the broader task for all God's people is to return to God and obey him. And we want to keep those tasks in mind as we go into the story. So as you read through the beginning chapters of Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel, who would be king if they still had a king, leads the people there and they start building the temple. And some of the neighboring nations come in and, and ask to help because they also uh, worship God. And Zerubbabel says, no, only Jews allowed. We're not accepting any help. We're going to do this ourselves. And so that makes some enemies, and there's like letter-writing campaigns and all this kind of controversy and stuff. But eventually, they do get the temple built. And we're going to look at the dedication of the temple. But I want you to compare what we're going to read to other moments like this that we've encountered in the story. Because we've encountered two other moments similar to this one, and they were very important moments in the history of Israel. When the tabernacle was dedicated and when the temple was dedicated. you notice that both of those were key moments in Israel's history in terms of putting together the initial parts of the plan in the wilderness and then finally achieving all the parts of God's plan under Solomon. So see if you can remember what happened there and watch what happens when they dedicate this temple. Or 
what doesn't happen. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. That is the entire description of the dedication of the temple. You notice anything missing? God. When they dedicated the tabernacle and they put all the pieces together, the presence of God tangibly, visibly moved from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle. It even spouted out fire to start the sacrificial altar, right? Remember all that? God was very obviously there. Then, when they moved the Ark of the Covenant into the temple to dedicate the temple under Solomon, the Spirit of God tangibly descended on the temple, and you could tell that God was there. It was so intense that they couldn't even enter the building. And that's probably what they are expecting when they dedicated this temple. But instead, they rebuilt the temple, but God's presence didn't return. God was nowhere to be seen. He was present in the sense that he was present everywhere, but he couldn't be seen. He didn't take up residence in the temple. But the presence of God in a, in a location among his people is part of the plan. It is something that they would have been expecting. And so as they built the temple, they had to, on some degree, have been disappointed by the results. Because God doesn't actually live at this temple. It might have something to do with the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is gone, never to be recovered, in spite of what Indiana Jones tells us. But it's gone during the exile. Uh, but God's presence doesn't show up. And so that means that the full restoration of Israel is not yet happening. They were probably hoping that everything that God promised uh, in that Deuteronomy passage that I read, you would happen as they rebuilt the temple, but it doesn't. So they, they keep going on, and they keep going about their business and rebuilding their lives in Jerusalem, but I think they're probably, it doesn't say this, but I think they're probably on the lookout for what, what's not good enough. Where is the problem? Who's the, who's the Jonah, or what's the issue that's keeping us from being restored to God? And then they find one. After these things had been done, the leaders came to Ezra. Ezra's a priest and an expert in the law who came to teach them the law. And they said to him, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. This old issue. You may remember that back during the conquest, the Israelites made their major mistake of not driving out the, the, the Canaanites so that they intermingled with them and they started adopting their practices and it diluted their, their representation of God and it created a problem that dogged them their whole history. And so the leaders of Israel look around and they say, oh man, we're getting back into the exact same problem. So we need to deal with this, we need to nip it in the bud. So they get everybody together, and Ezra stands up in front of them and says, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. 
So they set up a tribunal, and everybody has to go before this tribunal, and if your wife isn't Jewish, you get divorced, and you send her away, and any children associated with it, they have to leave. And this is one of those passages that we struggle with, and we don't talk about a ton, because we understand the importance of following God's command, and we understand the, the logic of all of this, but the, the way it's addressed makes us right? The way it's addressed makes us uncomfortable. Uh, it's, it's similar to how we react to uh, violence in the Old Testament when God's people are violent. The fact that the, these divorceable divorces don't sit well with us, uh, but it seems to be what they're supposed to do, and there's a tension there. But nevertheless, they forced all the Jews with foreign wives to get divorces. So now, they feel like they've pretty well purified Israel, so now maybe it's time to try again. Now maybe they're ready to be restored to God. And so, they get everybody together, and they read the law of Moses in its entirety, whatever, you know, probably the whole Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then they all make a declaration together. This is what they say. The rest of the people, all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So they, they reiterate the covenant, they return to the covenant, and, um, and they, they say, we're all going to follow this again. This is a passage that we often hear about on church anniversaries, when, or you know, when we're... we're um, renewing our commitment to our church identity, that kind of thing. Um, they, they decide to go back and renew the old covenant, which seems like a good thing. But if you keep reading, there's something interesting that happens. As they're talking, they, they keep talking, and they list like seven or eight specific laws out of the whole 613 that they're going to keep. Now, they're obviously going to keep all of them. So they, they name these ones because they seem to be important or especially important or especially representative of the law or of their, their vision of what the law is supposed to be. Now, if you were going to pick laws to represent the law of Moses, what might you pick? The Shema, so uh, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Maybe you could add a second one like Jesus did, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You could also pick the first ten, the Ten Commandments. Uh, those were in some sense meant to be representative of what the law contained, but they don't follow either of those. Here's, I'll give you just the first couple that they list. This is just carrying on immediately with this, reading, this passage. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. And then they go on, they list a few more, like we're going, to, we're going to make sure and give this offering very faithfully, we're going to make sure and set up a rotation to take care of the temple, and laws like that. But it's a very interesting list of laws to represent what the Torah is supposed to be about, because they tend to focus on two things. One is keeping Israel separate, keeping the Jews separate from their neighbors, and two is calling out commands that can be visibly measured. Because they're, they really want to be able to make sure they're following the law. But things like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you can't measure. You can measure how much people give. 
You can measure whether they work on the Sabbath. So they really emphasize certain kinds of rules. So what's happening here is they renewed the old broken covenant with a new emphasis on racial purity and rule-keeping. And this is, they're founding a mindset that is going to carry on into the New Testament and play a major role in uh, the ministry of Jesus and, and the people he encounters. <clears throat> there are three important things that happen in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple, they renew the covenant, and then they, they rebuild the walls. And a different person does each one. Ezra leads them in renewing the covenant. Zerubbabel helped build the temple. And then the last guy, Nehemiah, he is a Jew who served the king and, and came over to help them rebuild the walls. Um, you need walls to protect a city. And so, and so he comes to repair, to repair the walls. And typically, this is one that you use. The building of the temple is something we usually talk about when we want to do a building project and you know, build, re, uh, build a new wing on the church building or something like that. We use church anniversaries to talk about the uh, renewing of the covenant. And then Nehemiah we usually talk about as a leadership model. Uh, we don't quite know what else to do with them, and I, we'll talk about that why. why. But usually I've heard uh, Nehemiah talked about as a leadership model because we focus on how he goes about getting the walls built. Because he faces opposition, and he has to you know, do all these logistics and stuff, and so, he rebu- uh, so we focus on how he builds the walls. But today, I want to focus on what they do with the walls once they're built. So they build the walls through this whole process that you can read about in Nehemiah, and then they have a dedication ceremony, and they read the Law of Moses again. It says, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. It's interesting to me that this is something they noticed now, as opposed to the first time they read through the law, and I wonder whether it's because they didn't have walls before. Because it's hard to keep people, if, if they kicked them out before the walls were built, they could have just walked right back in. But now they have walls. Now they can actually control who's in the city and who's not. So I'm, I'm just wondering whether it's a coincidence that once they have the walls, that's when they suddenly realize, hey, we're supposed to be kicking these people out. But they notice that it says no Ammonites or Moabites in the assembly of God, so they kick all foreign people out of the city. So they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem and expelled all the foreigners. Now Ezra and Nehemiah is a, is a book that we don't do, we don't really know what to do with. I've mentioned a couple of the ways that we tend to use it. I'm not saying there's necessarily something wrong with using them that way, but I think the reason why we only seem to take them out at certain occasions is because we struggle with the point of the story. Because it doesn't end in a particularly inspiring way. They've done all this work to, to get Israel back on its feet and to make sure that they are obeying God, they've returned to God and they obey him, they've rebuilt everything, the, the plan should be getting restored, right? God should be coming back any day now. But what ends up happening, here's how the story ends in the last chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has to go back and report to the king of Persia. And then when he returns, he finds that everything has fallen apart again. 
They're renting rooms in the temple to foreigners. They're not paying, their people aren't paying the um, priests, so the priests can't afford to work in the temple, so they've abandoned the temple to work in the fields. People are breaking the Sabbath. They're marrying foreign wives again. Like, everything has fallen apart. And so the last chapter is Nehemiah going on a tour of Jerusalem and yelling and screaming at everybody who's messed up and, like, beating them up and pulling their hair and just angry and frustrated. And I'm going to read you the end of the book. This is how the whole book ends. One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Shanbalat, the Heronite. Okay, so the grandson of the high priest was married to a a foreigner. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at, de- at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. The end. It's a very underwhelming ending. And it basically ends with Nehemiah listing his grievances and his accomplishments and saying, God, remember everybody who, who isn't keeping the covenant and remember how hard I tried to make them. And that's the end. That's all he can say. Because in spite of their best efforts, the Jews ended up still in exile and no better at keeping the covenant. And I think if it had a more inspiring ending, we might spend more time in these books, but we don't know what to do with them. And I think that's partly because this assumption that we make that if, that we should, if we're not told otherwise, whatever the main characters are doing must be the right thing. That's usually how our stories, when we tell stories to teach lessons, that's usually what we do. We kind of spoon feed the morals. But the Bible doesn't do it that way. Sometimes it calls it out explicitly. But one of the reasons why we're reading this in this design called the plan is to recognize the fact that the Bible, like the plan is something that I made up. It's not something that God says. I'm trying to describe what God says. But one legitimate and real thing about the Bible is it tends to expect you to be asking the question, are they doing what God told them to do? And what is the outcome? And, and evaluating stories and not just being spoon-fed everything. So, we see that the outcome is not great. So then we might ask the question, did they actually do what, were they doing the right thing throughout this story? Well, let's take a look at what God had actually told them to do. So, let's go back to those divorces, okay? Here's the law that they cited to motivate all of that. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, When the Lord your God drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, do not intermarry with them. And there's two things to notice about this. Number one is that I did not edit out the passage where it says that if you do marry them, you should divorce them. Because there is no passage that says that. The law of Moses does not say that the solution to this problem is divorce. That was an idea that, they, that Ezra and the Jews came up with at the time. Okay, so that's not in the law. Number two is that that list of nations is a closed list. It doesn't say, don't marry foreign women. It says, don't marry women from these seven nations. And even gives you the number. It names seven nations and then says, seven nations. There's another passage that will add two more nations, one of which is Egypt, and I forget the other one, but that's nine nations, but that is a closed list. The law never says, don't marry foreigners. That was actually a fairly common practice, and there's multiple foreigners in Jesus' family tree. 
These were specific nations that were the original occupants of the land that God had given Israel, and he didn't want them to let them live there and stay on their land and marry into them. But the law doesn't say don't marry foreign women. Then let's look at what they were actually what they what actually happened during the time of Ezra. Here's what they when they complained to Ezra, they said, The people of Israel have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They're not saying that these women belong to those prohibited nations. They're also not saying that the men, their husbands have started adopting their practices. What they're saying is that these women come from nations that are like the ones that are forbidden. So the law doesn't actually, the law doesn't actually say that they're not allowed to have these marriages. And so what they're doing is they're spreading, they're stretching out God's law a little bit. The way um, Pharisees uh, and rabbis later would describe it is putting a fence around the law to make sure that you can't even get close to breaking it. So here, here's the law, but here's the fence because we don't want you to even get to the law. The problem is that what they're doing ends up conflicting with commands that God actually gave Israel about how they're supposed to treat foreigners. Here's one of many places where God tells them something to this effect in the law. God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Over and over again, God tells them to love the foreigners that are among them, which also assumes there will be foreigners among them, right? And he says, treat them compassionately because you know what it's like to be them because you were foreigners in another country and it wasn't easy. In fact, Jeremiah, who was a prophet only 70 years before this moment, God spoke through him to give them specific instructions about what was going to, or specific expectations about what was going to happen to the neighboring nations when everybody returned back to their homelands. He says, if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. According to God, is there a place for foreigners among Israel? Yes. Now, what about the temple, though, right? Right, we don't want them anywhere near the temple. We need to keep the temple pure. They're going to end up building courtyards, like series of courtyards to make sure to keep them away from the temple because that needs to be kept pure, right? Well, let's look at what was said when they dedicated the first temple. Here's part of Solomon's prayer as he dedicated the first temple. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, because that's the point of the plan, right? The whole point is that they will hear about God because of what Israel is doing, and then they'll want to come and see God and experience him, right? That's the whole point of the plan. So when the plan works and people and foreigners come to the temple, when they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Are foreigners meant to be coming to the temple? Yeah, part of the design. In fact, Isaiah is another prophet who gave them an expectation of what God wanted for his temple. In a very important prophecy, he says, this is God speaking, I will bring foreigners who keep my covenant to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Have you heard that before? 
You, you might actually not associate that with Isaiah. You might associate that with a different prophet, or perhaps more than a prophet, who said those words in this very temple that, Ezra, that, that they, the Jews just built. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is what that's referring to. That God desired his temple to be a meeting place of all humanity to God. But the Jews have become so focused on making sure that they never make their old mistakes and making sure that they follow every law to the letter that they miss out on the whole point of the law that God gave them. Because the law that God gave them was not meant to be the absolute moral law of right and wrong. It was meant to be his instructions for how they could accomplish their purpose of showing God to the nations. That's why so much of the law doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't really impact us because it wasn't designed to be meaningful to us. It was designed to be meaningful to the culture they were living among so that the cultures around them would know who God was. The law speaks to that time and it has a, it's guiding them in their purpose. And unfortunately, what has now happened is they're following the laws in a way that obscures that purpose. They're trying as hard as they can to be God's people, but they're trying to do it by keeping everybody else at an arm's length, which, according to the purpose of the plan, makes about as much sense as lighting a lamp and putting it under a basket. You heard that one before? That's what it's talking about. And all of this, I think, is wrapped up in the fact that they are bringing the wrong they're bringing the wrong mindset to this restoration that God has promised them. They're trying to restore God's people by going back to the old covenant, by reenacting the old broken covenant that hadn't worked. But that old broken covenant was meant to be a part of a story, was meant to be part of a project that God is doing, that it was meant to actually lead to a new covenant. And they had been told what to expect that new covenant to look like. God did not promise them another old covenant. Jeremiah told them what to expect. He said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors because they broke my covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now that prophecy was 70 years old, during this story, when they decided to read the Old Covenant and use that to get everybody on board and to get everybody to finally do it right so everything could be restored. They were going to the Old Covenant and they weren't looking for God to bring a new covenant that would actually do what the Old Covenant couldn't do because the rules weren't enough. What the New Covenant points towards is the fact that people need to want the same thing that God wants. We can't want something different than God and just be given rules that guide us to what God wants because then we end up missing the point. So we need a new covenant that actually transforms us. That's what they needed to be looking for. And so in their passion for enforcing the rules, the Jews lost sight of God's plan to reach the world through this new covenant. They lost sight of the goal chasing after the rules. And they, the exile didn't end for them. They would have to wait for when God finally would bring this new covenant. And I think seeing how the story of Ezra and Nehemiah unfolds, I think it helps us address a really sticky subject that Christians have always struggled with, which is how do we deal with God's rules and God's grace? Because they seem to contradict each other to some point, and it's at least the way we embrace them. And so the rules tell us 
how to live, and the grace forgives us when we fail. And we struggle with that balance because we want to we make sure everybody lives right, but if we emphasize that the wrong way, we will not leave room for grace when we mess up. But if we go all the way to grace and completely forget about the rules, then we end up just endorsing sin. And we're trying to find this balance, right? And I think that that balance is found in realizing that God gives commands to his people to help them fulfill their role in his plan. The commands that God gives us are for a purpose. That isn't to say that they don't, they're not also good and right. But the reason God gives commands to us is to uh, help us fulfill a purpose. Because notice the people who haven't been given the law, still, there's still a sense of right and wrong there, and they're still considered culpable for the fact that we're doing wrong, and it's still praiseworthy when we do right, even it, because we have that sense of right and wrong. But what God reveals to us, those, that is for a purpose, to help us accomplish his plan. And when we recognize that we're given those commands and those rules and those, for a purpose, then that should reveal to us that it is possible for us to follow those commands in a way that interferes with God's plan. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, that's what they were doing, is they were so focused on following the rules at any cost that they missed what the rules were pointing them towards, the kind of people God wanted them to be, and they ended up missing the target. And that's something that can happen to us, where we, we think that the goal is either law or grace, but, and, and we have to give one or the other. But the point of the rules and the, and the instructions that God gives us is to help us fulfill his purpose. But the purpose is the end goal. So that means if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow God, it's not enough to just say, all right, I'm going to meticulously keep these rules. We actually have to want what God wants. We actually have to be trying to accomplish working on the goal fulfilling his plan. So true repentance means following God's plan, not just his rules. You can follow the rules and have an ungodly heart and completely miss the target. That is possible. Now, if you're trying to hit God's target and you're constantly breaking his rules, that's also a major red flag because they go together, right? But ultimately, when we're true, the, the true repentance God is looking for is people who want to accomplish the plan, the purpose that he's given us. That purpose to build his kingdom. That purpose to show the world who God is. To share his love. And the way we, we teach the commands and the way we follow the commands and the way we apply the commands should all be part of living that out. Now, that is incredibly challenging, and it is a challenge that, uh, obviously, the Jews really struggled with, as, as well-equipped as they were. I mean, they had living prophets among them at the time. Some of the minor prophets were living during this time. They were well-equipped to take this on, and they, they didn't hit the target. But for us, we have a hope that they didn't have yet. Because that new covenant that they were waiting for has come. Paul tells us that he received from the Lord what he also passed on uh, to the Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That new covenant that is meant to transform our hearts 
not just be a new set of rules, but to be a transforming power in our minds and in our souls, that comes through Jesus Christ. That comes through his sacrifice on the cross. That comes through his new life from the empty tomb. That comes from the Holy Spirit that is given to his people when they follow him. But the promise of God is that there is actually his power available to you to transform you, to transform your heart. Now, it is not instantaneous. It is a lifelong process. But it is possible. In fact, when God starts that process, he is faithful to finish it. But Jesus established the new covenant that can truly transform us, and that hope is available to us today. That is why we can read these stories and be warned by these stories and learn from these stories, but still hope that God is doing something that will truly last and will truly transform through his people, as he has been doing for the last 2,000 years and will continue to do until Jesus returns. So as we close, I'm going to ask you, what is God calling you to do? What is the next step that God is calling you to take? Because it could be that he wants you, that it's time for you to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you haven't uh, accepted that, that um, sacrifice that Jesus made. Maybe you haven't dedicated your life to the cause that God has called you to. Today is the best day for you to give yourself to him and to let him transform you and to begin that process of making you the person he called you to be. Maybe you've made that decision, but you need to rededicate yourself to it because you found yourself getting pulled into the wrong direction, maybe getting pulled into the, the rules for the rules' sake or, or losing the heart of the goal that God wants you working toward. Today is a great day for you to rededicate your life to Christ. If you want to make either one of those decisions, you could come forward during our final song. But God also doesn't cause, call us to make this journey alone. He calls us to do it together. He calls us to be part of his people. And so you could, if you are looking for a family, for a community that walks this path together and that seeks to help each other to be transformed by the power of God, that's who we are. And you can do that on, in a small group scale by joining one of our small groups or a service team. Small groups will get together and learn and study together. Service teams will give back to the church or to the community. Or you can sign up for a Connect class, and that will be your path to becoming a member of the congregation at large and taking a role in the decisions that we make and the identity that we, that we have. And you can mark those decisions on your Connect card. God may be calling you to make some other decision in a situation I don't know about. Um, please be open to what the Spirit is saying to you, but I'd ask you to consider uh, what step God is calling you to take as we stand and sing our final song.